This installment of the AX Insider podcast features a conversation with Steve Van Beek, Director and Head of North American Aviation at STEER, a global transportation consultancy where he works with airport authorities, private sector companies, and government agencies on aviation policy and regulation, public-private partnerships, and strategic planning. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the AX Insider podcast. My name is Andy Telejohn. I'm the senior writer at Airport Experience News. And today we're talking with Steve Van Beek, the director and head of North American Aviation at STEER, a global transportation consultancy where he provides consulting services on aviation policy and regulation, public-private partnerships, and strategic planning for airport authorities, private sector companies, and governments. I uh, imagine right, right where we're at right now in time, Steve, there's probably plenty of strategic planning to be done. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Andy. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, Steve, you recently uh, came up with a, a report that looked at a number of challenges facing the industry and facing the new Biden administration as he takes, as uh, President Biden takes office. Uh, he's been in there for a few weeks now. This uh, th- this report was uh, was published a, a few weeks before that. Uh, one of the things you talked about was the need for him to bring in some uh, experienced and respected officials to uh, start looking at some of these issues right out of the gate. Uh, I'm curious. He's been in there for a few weeks now. Uh, w- what are your thoughts so far on how that's going? I think it's going very well, Andy. Um, what you've seen from the president is really the appointment of almost a whole slate of senior and mid-level political appointees into both DOT and agencies like the FAA. They're not completely done yet, but we have a very good idea about the leadership of the agency. Uh, One of the most important people is the deputy secretary who will be working with him and trying to integrate policy at DOT with agencies like the FAA. And Polly Trottenberg um, has been uh, nominated. She she must be confirmed by the Senate, but she's an outstanding candidate. And then another example would be uh, Brad Mims, a former colleague of mine who uh, was appointed as the deputy administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, um, another experienced hand. So um, quite pleased about that. But the interesting thing is he's already pointed some people all the way down to the special assistant uh, category, which is really the lower ranking level of uh, political appointees. So they spent a lot of time during the transition, notwithstanding some bumps in the road with the uh, handoff from the Trump administration and getting this right. Yeah, the, the, that handoff was, uh, was an interesting thing to watch. Steve, you, had, uh, you talked about in your report how you'd been hoping that uh, President Biden would not just focus on good people at the top, but uh, throughout the organization. So that's got to be encouraging uh, to see. Um, we've, uh, you also have talked about, uh, you know, the need to, you know, overhaul the funding system that, uh, that uh, rules airports right now. We've been talking, if we've known each other for 10 years, we've been talking about the PFC for 12. <laughs> yes. uh, the, uh, the Airport and Airways uh, Trust Fund has uh, not been working ideally over the years. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that? Why does it need to be completely overhauled? And is there support for that right now? Well, um, let's step back a little bit. Uh, during uh, COVID, Congress actually put the Airport and Airway Trust Fund excise taxes that fund things like FAA operations, capital, 
the airport improvement program, they put those fees on a tax holiday through the end of 2020. So those fees have uh, only recently, as of January 1st, got back into uh, the industry and obviously at a uh, much slower volume of passengers right now, the fees coming into the system aren't enough to support the full costs of the system. So um, Congress could agree with the Biden administration just to keep the old system and let it just gradually build back up. But what that's going to require then is an infusion of taxpayer money to support the system, a system which in prior years had been primarily funded by the system's users. Um, So that'll just be something they have to tackle. And the question is, you know, there'll at some point be some budget pressures placed back on Congress and the administration. And um, if they don't resolve the airport and airway trust fund and taxpayer contributions, that could cause the industry a little bit of a problem. Now, as you know, one of the reasons that the industry has been so um, supportive of the passenger facility charges, which is up to $4.50 per segment placed on passenger itineraries up to a maximum of two connections, um, is because it's really a self-funded system. It's local revenue. Uh, that can be used for FAA-approved capital projects, and that 450 has stayed the same uh, with its ceiling since 2001. So that's 20 years of value that has been lost. It's now worth, uh, you know, in real terms, about two dollars compared to the 450 when it was passed. Uh, and right now, the carriers remain adamantly opposed to it. But if the PFC can be part of a package where you say maybe we don't have to have the excise taxes quite as high on the carriers, and instead the airports can collect this at the local level and help their own funding needs, uh, perhaps we have the basis of a deal there. But uh, we'll see. That's been a real tough, uh, you know, uh, very tough politics on that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it, it it hasn't uh, it hasn't particularly gone well in uh, in prosperous times. Uh, do you get the sense that there's any kind of movement from you know from from either the airline side, the airport side, or I, I guess even from uh, uh, from Capitol Hill to uh, where that might uh, where that might come together? I mean, are they are they seeing these problems too, or is it too early to tell? Uh, they're seeing these problems too, but right now they haven't shifted. Uh, from providing some taxpayer money, which in many ways has been very good for airports. Uh, Congress has provided well over uh, $10 billion initially and then $2 billion uh, in recent months to airports, basically with 100% share uh, to support both airport balance sheets and to support airport capital projects. So as I say, that the appetite for that kind of taxpayer assistance will at some point erode and then I think you'll begin to have conversations about what the level of the right excise tax is, whether PFCs can play a role. Perhaps even Congress looks to uh, deregulate the airport's um, uh, economics a little bit better, consistent with the carriers, to give airports more options. But we're not at that second stage yet, Andy. Okay. Well, that uh, you know the, the the deregulation piece. Uh, uh, that's an interesting segue because you uh, you talked in your report a little bit not only about uh, uh, about the funding system but on the need to make sure that small airports and and and, and uh, small communities are, are are looked out for during this time. Uh, we've had pilot shortages. We've had uh, 
uh, you know, just a lot of things working against some of these small carriers, even in good times. Uh, how, how do you protect that, uh, the, that segment of the uh, industry right now? Well, it's challenging. We have two fairly modest federal programs, the Essential Air Service Program and the Small Community Development Grant Program, both of which have provided some assistance uh, to the first one to very small commercial service airports and the second to small hubs and uh, below in the industry. But the real challenges, you certainly mentioned one, which has been uh, during prosperous times, a pilot shortage. Uh, the other one that's really hurting is the gradual disappearance of 50 seat uh, regional jets in the market. And, you know, Andy, one of the issues is some communities just can't support, particularly with high frequencies, uh, large aircraft, be they uh, 90 seater, 110 or 150 seaters. So we're really worried about that sort of hub connectivity uh, from those smaller airports going forward. Now, perhaps Congress will say, listen, since we've provided some taxpayer subsidies uh, for the industry, air carriers in areas like the rural West, Alaska, um, other areas, perhaps you need to then, uh, as a condition for getting some of the money that you've received, is continue to serve those markets. You saw that initially with COVID. It'll be interesting to see if that's a price they have to pay to get some federal assistance down the line. But even in 2019, if we were talking, I would have told you that small community air service is a real challenge for the industry right now. Yeah, so that, uh, you know, you also wrote a little bit about the promotion of airline and market competition and the importance that small, uh, some of the smaller carriers getting away from the legacy carriers uh, played in making sure that prices stayed low and the competition was strong. Uh, I've even heard some folks say that some of the smaller carriers might have an easier path to, to recovery during this COVID period. Uh, how important uh, do the small air carriers uh, play a role in here? And could that be something that helps small markets at all? Yes. I mean, let's divide that question into two, because I think it uh, has two very different aspects to it. Let's start first with the ultra low cost carriers like Spirit and Allegiant and Frontier. They, in many cases, have provided a few of the smaller community airports with larger jets taking people from their airports um, to destination markets, be they Las Vegas, Arizona, Florida, the Caribbean. And those have actually, in some cases, really helped some of these smaller airports. Um, not all of them, to be sure, but the ultra low cost carriers taking people to destination markets. And I think you know that leisure travel will, will remain a relatively strong segment over the next three or four years. So that's um, that's certainly good news uh, for those airports. But what I really addressed in the article was the role that airlines like JetBlue and Alaska Airlines have played. JetBlue on the East Coast primarily, Alaska on the West Coast primarily, in giving carriers like United, American, and Delta some competition and overlapping their routes. When they've done that, whenever you have competition, Andy, what you find is fares go down. And when fares go down, you create this virtuous spiral where demand goes up. And as demand goes up, they put more flights in and the pattern just keeps repeating itself. So for markets like my client in Spokane, Washington, for example, um, they've had a lot of competition, which has driven a lot of growth uh, for that particular market. Um, and one of the concerns coming out of this is perhaps, you know, anytime there's industry dis dislocation, 
there's pressure for mergers and consolidation. And you've already seen that to some degree with right before the Trump administration left, uh, they approved a code share partnership between uh, JetBlue and American uh, that some people are concerned may actually reduce uh, market competition and that would slow recoveries to places like Boston, for example, uh, coming out of recovery. Now, there's been a lot of comments about that, and I think the administration uh, is likely to take a, another look at that. But that's just one example where um, we need carriers to be independent and competing with each other, and we don't need carriers necessarily selling the seats of another carrier, because what that usually means is we've gone from two carriers in the market to one. Um, so it's just something to keep an eye on. And I, Andy, I think that's both the case here in the U.S. It's also the case in Europe and elsewhere. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Steve Van Beek, Director and Head of North American Aviation at STEER, a global transportation consultancy, is joining us today. Uh, so, Steve, are, what are your thoughts so, you know, on this recovery period? Uh, you know, like I mentioned, I'd heard from a couple folks that some of the smaller carriers might actually have an easier route to to, uh, to, you know, recovering from some of this downturn. Do you agree with that? Are we, uh, are, are these carriers going to make it all out of this all right to uh, be able to keep providing some of that competition? Uh, I take that question of, of just above and beyond whether or not the carrier should be joining together and, uh, and sharing routes sure. and things like that. Uh, uh, what, what does the recovery look like for these airlines and for these markets? Well, let's, let's start overall. Uh, Steer right now is projecting about a three to four year recovery. Uh, on the operation side, meaning the number of flights that are scheduled and seats. Um, and then we are also a little bit concerned though, but a, let's call it about 100% revenue recovery. So it may be that the actual operations in the industry recover prior to the revenues recovering. It is those revenues that are important for, for airline balance sheets, for airport balance sheets, for concessionaires and other people in the industry. Um, you know, so that's one big concern. Uh, and one reason revenues uh, might be a little softer than operations goes to your question about smaller carriers, Andy. Um, we do think that leisure uh, travel will outperform business travel, at least at the initial stages of this recovery. And as that happens, that will disproportionately likely benefit carriers like Frontier, Allegiant, and Spirit, three of the smaller airlines, but those who disproportionately serve uh, those leisure travelers. Now, you've actually seen, though, uh, the larger carriers adjusting to that and starting to serve, you know, United moving more aggressively from the Northeast into Florida than they did before. And so they're seeing the same trends the other smaller airlines are. And so you may see a fair amount of competition on those routes, which would drive uh, recovery a little bit faster. Uh, the primary concern is on international and domestic business travel, uh, where, you know, it, it's down 75% really uh, across the market. And in some cases, uh, it's even down more than that. So that's the real concern that people looking at the industry right now have. Yeah. And uh, another item you mentioned in the report, I, I believe, uh, was the, uh, the need for uh, not only North American uh, travel agencies uh, but also the governmental uh, agencies uh, and aviation overseers internationally to start working together on some global standards. Uh, how important is that uh, at getting some of that international travel 
going again and to getting the American uh, system uh, up and running closer to those uh, uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2019 numbers again. Yeah, I think it's absolutely vital, Andy, particularly for international travel. Uh, The good news is I think compared to six weeks or two months ago when I initially wrote uh, this piece about the incoming Biden administration, I think both internationally and domestically, uh, we've seen both, uh, well, we've seen airports, airlines, and actually the new Biden administration take some steps that really will achieve two things. Number one, it'll make the travel experience safer. And here we don't just mean inside the cabin, but from your front door to your destination and back, right? So making that experience safer is is vital. And secondly, linked to that is the perception of travelers that it is safer, uh, which is also important. And I was a little concerned initially by the haphazard approach in the industry where some airports and airlines were saying, hey, we're extra clean. Uh, And that's all well and good. But if you're part of a networked industry with both a departing and arriving airport and community, that doesn't cover the whole passenger experience. Um, But similar to after 9-11 with the Bush administration, what you now actually see the Biden administration doing is exerting stronger national leadership about masking policy, social distancing on aircraft and with airports. And, uh, you know, considering some other measures as well. And, you know, I think those are vital uh, for the system. And you also have international organizations like the International Air Transport Association, Airports uh, Council International, and the uh, international regulator, ICAO, all three of those organizations working together better to assure that as as we get into recovery and as passengers travel internationally, They'll have similar experiences uh, across the globe and that border control agencies, for example, which are vital uh, to that experience, will have uh, similar policies, hopefully, and regulations. And that sort of foundation for the international air system will be imperative for the recovery. So I'm a little more um, bullish than I was in December when I initially wrote this. And uh, a fair amount of that credit can go to the Biden administration, which I think has come in and exerted stronger leadership. Okay. I was going to ask about that. Uh, uh, it, it sounds like things are maybe at least a little, uh, if, if nothing else, a little calmer uh, 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 and, and perhaps uh, a bit more uh, in, uh, in tune with what uh, folks think need uh, needs to happen in order to start accelerating the recovery a little bit. But uh, you're you're out there uh, looking at this every day. Uh, so your sense is that things are moving in the right direction, uh, at least in the first few weeks of the Biden. Yes. And, and let's let's remember, there are two things really linked here to the recovery, Andy, right? One is the propagation of COVID and the vaccines and trying to, you know, have testing so that people uh, feel some assurance uh, when they fly. And the good news over the last couple of weeks, I was even looking at the data just before our call, is that uh, hospitalizations and uh, deaths are down uh, with COVID uh, quite quite appreciably in the last couple of weeks in the States. So um, if we don't get a Super Bowl party bump <laughs> on that, hopefully that will continue. But linked as well is the state of the economy to COVID. And it is ultimately when people have more money in their pocket and they feel that their future six months from now is going to be secure, they're going to have a higher propensity to fly. 
And recently, we've seen a little bit of um, increase in the projected GDP growth in the states and in some other places as well. And that may um, that may help recovery. Um, you know, the last year, basically, we've been working a lot for our clients and projecting different scenarios for how the industry is going to recover. And they're always around number one, COVID, and number two, then, um, you know, ending the economic recession that is linked to COVID and getting into stronger economic growth. I think actually once we're sort of back to some sense of normalcy, we're going to see a huge bump um, in economic activity and then maybe a little bit of lag in travel. And what's interesting, Andy, is that's exactly what happened 100 years ago when the uh, 1919 pandemic ended. Um, government initially did some dumb things by pulling back and not putting any money in the economy. But once uh, normalcy came, that's where you talked about the roaring 20s um, and uh, all the economic growth that occurred prior to the uh, to the depression and, you know, 29 to 32. So um, I think several of us who know our economic history are a little bit um, uh, bullish. We might be a little less optimistic in the short to medium term, but we're going to be a little bit more optimistic in the medium to long term. Well, that's encouraging. Uh, it, uh, it, it it's nice to hear that uh, we might have some uh, some good times, and uh, if <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm good times ahead and not not too far out. I know that uh, uh, my family. I've got two young kids, and I know we're itching to be able to get somewhere besides the house. We haven't. Uh, haven't really gone out and done much, and and we're uh, we're a family that likes to get out and travel a little bit, and so uh, I'm I'm itching to I'm I'm itching to see some of that come true. Uh, we had infrastructure issues in the airport industry well before COVID hit. Uh, we've talked about the challenges facing the funding uh, mechanisms right now, uh, and I get the sense from talking to you that uh, airports that you're working with right now are really uh, looking at their finances and how they, uh, 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 how they might uh, take a look at some of the capital investments that they need, uh, maybe during a time when uh, there aren't as many travelers at the airport. What, what, are, how, how are, what are you hearing from the airports you work with right now in terms of how they're uh, preparing to use this time uh, and the, the, the financial, the, the money they do have uh, in taking care of some of their uh, investment needs? Yes, um, very good question, Andy. I think the tension right now in airport boardrooms and in discussions among uh, airport executive staff is how do we balance really two things? One is our finances and trying to think about um, how much powder do we need to keep dry? In other words, how, much, how many reserves do we need to guard against maybe another dip or unexpected event that might happen uh, with the aviation industry, given where we are right now. And uh, secondly is, um, what kind of investments do we need to make? Because um, in February 2020, you know, a lot of airports had um, hold rooms that were too crowded, security checkpoints that weren't right size. They had parking lots that were full. They had curbs and roadways that were congested. And they had a lot of plans on the books to sort of build those out. But now everybody's concerned that, look, if you build all that out as we thought we would in February 2020, now going forward, we're going to be spending a lot of um, uh, money and taking on some debt. And that'll then be the uh, cost of the interest and the principal will be passed on to our airport users. And that could make us uncompetitive. And it also could reduce the reserves that we have going forward. 
So that's why everybody's so focused on, Steve, what is the path of recovery going to look like and what are those different scenarios? Now, one of the things that's been very helpful, and I commend the airport trade associations and airports for their uh, strong lobbying, has been that Congress has been thinking about putting more money in to the airport improvement program and actually maybe having some terminal projects that would be funded uh, really at record levels going forward. And so we actually have some clients now who have said, hey, Steve, we think there will be access to some uh, federal capital. So why don't we get these projects going? Give us a new forecast. Let's determine how we should uh, configure our terminals for that new forecast and the variety of scenarios that we have. And uh, we want to have those ready to go in case this summer, you know, there's another stimulus bill that's focused on airport infrastructure. And so that's a little bit of a beehive of activity at some of the small, medium, and large hub airports right now. And that's, um, you know, that's helping a good deal. But the real tough questions are between what do I invest? Because I had all these congestion problems prior to March 2020. Um, and how do I keep enough on reserve? And what's that balance or line uh, between the two? And, you know, every airport with our assistance can assess their own market risk and whether they're going to be one of the first to recover or maybe they'll be a little bit later. Uh, what their mix of domestic and international traffic is, as you mentioned earlier, do they have a lot of ultra low cost carriers and those smaller carriers who might bring back recovery sooner? So it's a multivariable equation. Um, and that's what we're providing advice on. And that's what they're thinking about during this period of time. Sounds, uh, sounds good. Steve Van Beek, Director and Head of North American Aviation at the Global Transportation Consultancy STEER. Uh, Steve, uh, you've answered the questions I came with. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't hit on? No, Andy, I would just say, you know, the, the one thing that's kind of interesting just to think about how it cascades through the industry and through policy is, you know, prior to COVID, we had a decade of growth. And it seemed that that growth was continuing. We were going to have more congestion. We would need more projects. Um, and it stopped. And now we're going to have recovery. But the difference today is not only trying to get through this recovery, but also that we have more uncertainty than we had for those previous 10 years. Um, the one thing I can point to that's a good uh, factor going forward is the cheap, cheap price of jet fuel. And that could actually expedite our recovery as well. So we're going to still be in this period of uncertainty for a while. And everybody's just got to hold on tight. And when they get scenarios for recovery, they have to remember that they want to be successful in any of your low, medium, or high scenarios going forward, and not just some sort of point forecast you know, down the middle. Um, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but what I can help you do is be prepared for any of those possible scenarios. Sounds great, Steve. Uh, always, uh, as always, I've uh, I've learned a ton here today, and I appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, and give us giving us an update on where you think things are headed here. Steve Van Beek, director and head of North American Aviation at Steer. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks, and everybody stay safe. Cheers.